0: We're going to jump right into today, pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this idea of identity crisis, trying to figure out who we are, and what the church should look like, and what the church should sound like, and what the church should be doing, and all of these different aspects of what the church is composed of. And part of it is we've got to get rid of the misnomers, the church is where you go, because that's not correct. Like, this is where the church meets you got to get that first and foremost. The, the term church means ecclesia, it's the gathering together. But this is nothing but four walls, it's got some carpet, it's got some paint. You may like the carpet, you may like the paint, you may not. And you know what? I don't care. Because <laughs> who cares, right? Paint in pink and blue and black, I don't care. What I care about is what we the church do. And the problem is, is that we've got today a church that is lost it has no identity it's all over the map because what does it take to be a church in America today be anything you want you know they have atheist churches now you're gonna to have to explain that one to me they have churches that meet in bars they call it brew and Bible right I mean they got all this stuff going on and to be a church you just got to gather together and call yourself a church It's kinda of like the idea of a satanic church right so essentially I don't think we want to be associated in that same breath. So we have to define our terms. I hammer on this all the time. When I sit down with people and I'm doing counseling, and they say, you know, I'm just trying to achieve success, I'm like, well, you've got to tell me what that means. Because if you can't define it, you'll never know when you get there. You don't know which direction to go. You're just abstractly moving around. And realistically, that's where we are. As the church today, the body of Christ, we're doing what we feel are godly good things. But are we accomplishing anything? Are we measuring our results? I have seen churches invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into concerts, into big blow-up events to drag people in, and, and they're like, man, look at the crowd that we got, and they feel like they've accomplished something. It's not a bad thing, but measure your results. How many lives were truly transformed? And if it's not a number that you were trying to achieve, is there maybe a better way to do things? But what happens is we blow these things up and we're like, oh, look at how many people came and we feel good and we go on to the next event. You see, that is where the body of Christ is today. We have no metric of which that we are measuring what we should be doing and what we are accomplishing. You'll see churches that, that advertise, oh, we had 300 baptisms last year. Great, you might have just given 300 free baths. What did you accomplish? I mean, it's great. Listen, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying it's like, what matters is what changes here. And what matters is once that change is here, what should we be doing? And so we've been talking about identity. Here's the definition. I know we've read it a lot. We will stop reading it eventually. But it's the collective aspect of the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. A set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognized as a member of a group. And it's the quality or condition of being the same as something else. One of these things is not like the other. Because when you have a biblical church, there's a mandate on it. But then you have a social church, which is do what? Be nice, love one another, move on with life. Let bygones be bygones. The biblical church looks different, sounds different, acts differently. Because the biblical church is on mission from God. And isn't an attender... They're in the game. They didn't buy tickets to go watch ministry take place. The biblical church is one of the players who is suited up that is waiting for their number to be called. And they're going to practice and they're reading the playbook and they're doing everything they should be doing. So when the time and moment is in front of them, they're ready to act. we got too many people in the stands. Because we don't have biblical church today. We are spectators. It's time to get in the game. What does a Christian look like? What do they talk like? How do they act in every phase of life? We talk about this morally, and that is true. There are moral expectations that Jesus has laid out that Scripture is pretty clear upon. But this also comes down to how we behave in crisis. Because when you're in crisis mode, you'll find out what you really believe. When you're diagnosed with cancer... You'll find out, okay, am I walking in faith or am I freaking out that I might die? We should never freak out about death. It gets better. We're not going backwards, we're going forward. But you find out where you are. And guess what? It's okay to find out where you are, but don't stay there. Grow from there. When we face crisis, financially, emotionally, physically, financially, whatever it is, you find out really where you are. Because your body reacts to its training and to its expectation. That's why military guys, they go through these drills time and time and time again. So should they have to act in the moment of crisis, they just react. They don't have to sit and think about it. It's kind of like golf. Anybody ever play golf? Anybody lose their salvation playing golf? Right. And there's a thing. They tell you you need to swing hundreds of times to get that down. And eventually it becomes muscle memory. I'm still waiting on that, but they tell me that eventually... It becomes muscle memory. But there's all these little steps of how you set up and you got to waggle. You're required to shake your butt before you swing a golf club. It's a rule. Right, Stan? You know. <laughs> Never heard that rule? It's an unwritten rule, Stan. You probably had your hearing aids turned off. That's why you didn't hear it. And according to Stan, it doesn't matter where the ball goes. It matters how the shot felt. As long as it feels good, it counts. It's a playable ball. Also, according to Stan, that if you're out in the woods looking for your ball and you find another ball, that counts. You can play that ball. No stroke necessary. One of the secrets to his game. Don't let that tin handicap fool y'all. It does. It makes it move. That's right. But there are all these little things that you do, and so it's like as you're going, you're like, okay, I got to keep my elbow straight. I got to keep my head down. I got to go back. If you're going through all of that in your head, you got a really clunky swing. But once it's muscle memory, you just do it. You step up. You react. And you slice the ball. That's what you do. I don't know, maybe I told you all this story, but my son's a bit of a smart aleck. And they were doing the uh, little kids golf thing, and they're teaching the kids to play golf, and they don't invite me to come and help, okay? That they, just, they say, my son is welcome, and I can drop him off and pick him up, and that's the extent of it. And so one of the instructors there was talking. He's like, guys, you got to learn the lingo. And he says, you know, you drive for show, which means you hit the ball a long way, and people are impressed, but you putt for, and the correct answer is dough. Because that's where you make your money, is on the green, right? But when he says, so we drive for show, but you putt for, and he stops, waiting for the kids to respond. My son pipes up, he says, well, if you're my dad, it's double bogey. That's my boy. The problem is, he's not wrong. That's, That's the worst part about it. But it's creating this muscle memory in how we react, and how we respond, and what we do in every situation. A biblical Christian should never be freaked out about circumstances around them. We walk by faith, not by sight. I don't care what is going on, we stand up, we stand on what the Word says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. If you believe that verse, then what happened in the past will not affect you anymore. You will not live there, you will not be a victim of it, you will not go back to it. You'll say, no, 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 no. that's not me anymore. That is not me. God has made me new. That man died with Christ. This man rose with Christ. That's not me. In James chapter 4 verse 1 it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. Your murder and covenant cannot can, obtain. You fight and war yet you, have, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He gives grace, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, these are strong words written by the pastor in Jerusalem. So who Is he writing this letter to a bunch of unbelievers? He's not. And he just called them adulterers and adulteresses. He is writing this to the believers that are in Jerusalem. And the people around him. He says, you draw near to God, he'll draw to you. He says, you repent. You resist the devil, he will flee. He's talking to believers. He said, to cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. All of this is written to believers, and yet we wonder, what is the difference? Because he's having the issues then that we have today. Is that the body of Christ is almost unrecognizable as a distinction from the world. Because we try to walk as close to that line without crossing over to make sure we're just on this side, morally, emotionally, physically, financially. We've got to be responsible for our actions and realize that every word I say, I am an imager of Christ representing Him to the world around me. Then I've got to ask the question, how am I doing? Because when I overreact in a situation, when I underreact in a situation, I am exemplifying what Christ looks like. So if you've ever lost your temper with somebody, and I know nobody in here ever has, but let's just pretend for a moment it happened. You may have had somebody say, like, boy, that's not very Christ-like. You ever gone to a restaurant and got terrible service and not leave a tip? That's not very Christian of you. Maybe you should do your job better. We've got, see, but there's expectations. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's expectations that Christians, you know what, it it blows my mind, is that you ask servers who live in a, not Rockport area, but into a city that's got more people that come to their restaurant after church, they don't like serving on Sundays because they're stingy. They don't tip well. That's sad. That's very sad. But there is a representation that is going on there. You should be extravagantly Generous. So there's a distinction here. We've got to begin to look at and say, who is responsible for making me the man of Christ I should be? It's not God. He's already made me in His image. Now it is my turn. Justification, sanctification. Over here, that is on me. The Holy Spirit guides. The Holy Spirit convicts. It's up to me to step in it. You see, we are the body of Christ. And that matters. That should mean something to us. It should make us stand up and be like, wait a minute. If he's the head and I'm the body, that means I'm dragging Jesus with me everywhere I go. The words I say should reflect the words he said. The sad thing is today, it doesn't. It's anything goes. It's Thunderdome in the church. It's a free-for-all. Hunger Games, maybe that's more modern for some of y'all. I don't know. It's every man for himself. And that's the problem is we're looking out for ourselves i want to go to a church that plays this kind of music i want to go to a church that has this kind of ministry i want to go to a church that does this or does that and it's like wait a, minute, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute when did it become about you it is about us growing into the image of god to fulfill the mission that god has called us to but today's christianity is all about me we worship ourselves we create a god in our image and that's the god that we worship And we bring Jesus along for the ride, and we we want him in our lives, but we don't want him to control our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches, the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He put all things under His feet. He gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, we are going to come back and work on this later the bottom line is this christ is above everything we are his body that means we're right there with him so there is nothing named on this earth no principality power spiritual force no physical thing that is above jesus jesus is above everything that means we do not need to worry about anything Chapter 2, verse 1, And you He made alive who were dead, in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, this is laying it all out there. The works that we do are a result of the change in our lives. So if the works we're doing look just like they did prior to us getting saved, prior to us, the sons of disobedience, the, the one who is the, the prince of the power of the air and it works amongst the sons of disobedience, we should see a clear distinction in them. Because that's not us. There's something different. We read this last week, Galatians 5 verse 16 says, I say then walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not know the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelers, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with His passion and desire. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Another clear distinction of the sons of disobedience and the sons of God. And if you look around today, you can't hardly tell the difference between the two. The only difference is, is they will throw in the occasional Bible verse and they will do the occasional good deed. We use scripture as our guide and we get people that quote scripture and I always laugh because I'm like you know who else quoted scripture? Satan quoted scripture. That doesn't mean anything. Somebody's saying and changing the meaning of a verse, like, well that verse doesn't mean this. That was mistranslated back then. Today it means XYZ. You'll hear people that will say, oh the Bible needs to get up to date. It hasn't changed. The principles in it are the same. The words of God are unchanging, unwavering, they are true, whether we like it or not. And let me tell you, most of the time, it's not. Because being a Christian in a world that hates Christianity is not one of convenience. You stay there because it's true. We will lay our lives down for truth. Not just what we believe. If what we believe is a lie, we are not willing to die for that. But every writer in the New Testament gave up their life for the truth that they knew. And that truth was they spent three years with Jesus being taught by him, and they watched him die, and they watched him get buried, and they watched him resurrect. No matter how bad they may have wanted to, they couldn't get away from that fact. Because it was true. You see, we go back to what Jesus has said. And so, here's the question of the day. You ready? What was the last thing that Jesus said to his followers last thing it's easy yes it is finished that's the last thing he said on the cross what's the last thing he said to his followers not all at once Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Is that the last thing that he said to his followers? It's not. That's the last thing he said to his followers while he was on the earth. (laughs) I'll be back. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. The last thing he said to his followers are in Revelation 2 and 3. Because he's speaking to his churches there. So we need to go back and look at this. Now this is not going to be exhausted by any stretch of the imagination. Okay? But we need to look at what he was saying to these seven churches. So look, I've got a map here. These are the seven churches. Okay? Pergamus, Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. There was a trade route. This is in modern-day Turkey. It was known as Asia Minor at the time. There was a trade route that went here and went from Ephesus and it kind of circled its way around. There was a lot of money changing hands in this area. There was a lot of things that were going on in this area. And it's interesting that Jesus cornered out these seven churches. Because you may not know this, but these were not the only churches. There was a lot of them. So we have to start at the beginning. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven churches were isolated by Jesus for a reason. And it is interesting as you begin to go through these, is that there's only two that he did not condemn. Only two out of seven. And we're looking at this from the standpoint of okay, what would Jesus say to his churches today? It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Let's start at the beginning Ephesus. This is the first one we're going to start with. This is known as the church that lost Christ's love, they walked away. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. This is going to be quick and dirty. Here we go. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right. Now, I'm going to stop here. Now, if you sat through, I taught through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago. So that's why we're not doing this exhaustively, because it took me a year to do it, okay? So if you don't want to go home for a long time, we can do this again. But I'm going to start at the beginning here. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. If you were here on Wednesday night, then you know that this isn't an angel That he's writing to. How do we know that? Two reasons. Number one, the word angel here just literally means messenger. But the second part is, is what is going on here? We're going to use a little logic, okay? It's not used a lot today, so maybe some of you are out of practice. Let me help. Is that Jesus gives a revelation to John the Apostle to write this down. Now, I'm no expert in communication from Jesus to his angels, but I don't think he needed John to get the message to the angel. We believe that this word being messenger is likely the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Because Jesus doesn't need John to write notes to his... You guys with me? This seems confusing, okay? We're just using a little logic. That's all we're doing. Alright, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps, says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, and I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So what are they doing? They're testing those who come in, claiming something, and judging them unworthy. Because they can't stand any of it. You have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. So these are all positives. Nevertheless, listen, if Jesus is starting this way with you, and then he goes to the here, not good. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is getting a message to his church in Ephesus. You're doing some good. Here's the problem. You've lost your first love. What is that? It's Christ's love and his teachings. They've gotten in here and they're doing some good things, but you've gotten away from the basics, from the foundations of understanding of not just what to do, but why we do it. Getting back in love and having that compassion for those around you. They're really good at weeding out the nonsense, but they lost their love for their fellow man. And you know what love for a fellow man does? He judges an apostle unworthy. No, that's a liar. That man is not telling the truth. That's not very loving and embracing in today's culture. But that's the reality of what was taking place. This is the first church, church of Ephesus. Now let's go to Smyrna. Now this was known as the faithful church, and we've talked about Smyrna a little bit. And so I'm going to go through this very quickly, but we talked about what was going on in Smyrna. Revelation 2 verse 8 it says into the angel of the church of Smyrna right these things: say the first and the last who was dead and came to life I know your works tribulation and poverty but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan do not fear any of those things which are, you are about to suffer indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life now remember Smyrna is the one I was talking about where they had to walk down that aisle and every year had to pinch some incense and burn it and Say allegiance to Caesar. That Caesar is Lord. And there's this great argument in the church of whether we should do that. Should we just pacify them and get to live? Or should we stand for what we believe and possibly cost us our life? That's how Polycarp died. Is he refused to pinch the incense. Today, most of us would be up there and we would justify our behavior. Let's go on. Pergamum. Pergamum is known as the church of the compromised beliefs. Revelation chapter 2 Verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things says he who has the sharp, two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. And because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak. To put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is going on here? Well, there's a lot that's going on here. There's always a description of Jesus, but this is the place where Satan's throne was. There's one of two possibilities. This is where Zeus' altar was. And that might be it, but this is also where they built a massive altar to Caesar. Remember, Caesar was worshipped as God. And you know what the son of Caesar was called? The son of God. And when they would go in and 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 uh, Smyrna and pinch the incense, it was Caesar is Lord. These are words that should not come out of a born-again believer's mouth. Because there is no name above this name. There is no Lord above this Lord. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above every name. But yet, this is what's going on. And so because of this, and these beliefs that they were holding, the doctrine of Balaam, they began to worship and blend these worldly practices into their Christian services and their belief system. They were meddling together the two worlds. But Jesus said there's a distinction between these two worlds. And here they're eating food sacrificed to idols, which they shouldn't do. They're committing sexual immorality. They're holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is a whole another subject that we're not going to go into today for the sake of time. But the idea here is that you are acting just like they. And Jesus has a problem with that. Because you need to repent or I'm coming to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know about you. I don't want Jesus coming against me. The idea of this sexual immorality has been embraced in culture today. Born-again couples are living together not thinking anything else about it because why not? Culture says it's okay. I'm going to marry this person anyway. Does it really matter? Jesus set a standard. The problem we have today in the church is we can't define our terms because when we talk about how did God define sex, we say it's between one man and one woman. But that's not true. It's between a husband and his wife. See, we've even muddied the waters. Because we've opened it up, but the truth be told is it was never designed for that. It was designed between a husband and his wife. So they're blending worldly practice with Christianity. So let's go to the next one, Thyatira. Right up there. This church is doing a bunch of dumb stuff. They're following some false prophets. Verse 18, chapter 2. The angel of the church of Thyatira write These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So it's going good so far. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. You but hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. There's a lot going on here, but the economy and Thyatira emphasize trades and crafts. What they did was they would build things and mainly idols. And they would create these idols, and there was this whole market for them. And there was these trade guilds that they would have, think of kind of like a union. And they would have these common meals that they would come together, and they would dedicate it to whatever the patron deity at Thyatira was. And so they had a Jewish community... But it wasn't very influential, and Christians who refused to participate in this lifestyle, in these guilds, would find it basically, they'd live on an island isolated from the rest of them, both socially and economically. It made it nearly impossible for them to make a living because they refused to practice these belief systems. And there were some of them that decided, okay, we'll compromise, we'll do some of this, it's okay, God will understand. Apparently not. Because he's scolding them about this. So let's go to the next one, Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, what, and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, have you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, and they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." Sardis is known as the dead church. Sardis and Laodicea are, interestingly, the only two cities that were never inhabited again after the destruction took place. Sardis also had never been taken by force, by battle, which was interesting. They had been taken two times by people coming in stealthily at night, like a thief in the night. That's what that term means, literally. And what he was saying here is that I will come upon you as a thief. Remember, we always try to make these mean something today. It means something to them. These words made sense to Thyatira, and you'll see that again here in a moment. But the church in Thyatira had no persecution to speak of. And thus, they had no spiritual life. Because things tend to grow as opposition forms. That is why you see the church and different parts of the world thriving where it is condemned. And you've got this part here where we come near to him with our mouth, but our hearts are far from him. That's Thyatira. Now, Philadelphia is known at the Enduring Church. In verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, and who opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that, uh, what you have, that no one may take your crown." He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. They are doing well. Now, there's a lot that's going on here, and we're not going to get into all the details, but again, facing opposition. They have not bowed their knee to anything. They have not compromised in any way, and Jesus is giving them rewards for that, saying, you keep up the good works. But Laodicea, this is the one we all know. The lukewarm church. This is the one that you hear talked about all the time. And there's so much misnomer about it. We're not going to go into a ton of detail just for the sake of time. But again, what happens in reality versus what we believe are not always the same thing. So, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write. These things says to the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I... I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, "I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing," and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Now, what is going on here? This is the lukewarm church, and this is where we get all the time. I would rather have you cold, or I'd rather have you hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of your mouth. Let me ask you this: we 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 make this spiritual. Hot is on fire for God, cold is dead for God, but don't walk the fence. That's how we say it. But does God really want anybody cold? No. Obviously not. He went to great pains to make sure you didn't have to be. So what is going on here? Laodicea was one of the wealthiest Phrygian cities out there, and during this period of time, they were ridiculously prosperous. It's kind of like you go into some of these Arab countries and they've hit gold or hit oil. And they're super wealthy and they've got the nicest buildings and airports and all of that. Imagine that, what's going on. But what is he talking about? That I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do you not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Well, see, the thing that was going on here is that they were loaded. And because they were loaded, they must have felt as if they were blessed from the Lord. But they weren't doing things right. Because he made that comment, you're not cold and you're not hot, you're lukewarm. What do you do with lukewarm water? You either make it hot or you make it cold. Because heated water is good for bathing, it's medicinal, it's all of these things. And cold water is a lot more refreshing. Lukewarm water, not great. Anybody reach into their soda pack there and grab a uh, warm soda? No. Not if you're American. Not how we roll. So, what's happening here? He's speaking something very specific to them that they would understand. Because of their wealth, they were able to build these aqueducts because they had no natural source of water there. And so 10 miles west of of there was Colossae, and 6 miles south was Heropolis. And Heropolis had these great hot springs, and Colossae had these wells with all this cold water. It was coming down off the mountains. And they would bring them all in, and by the time it got to Laodicea, what was it? It was neither hot and it was neither cold. That means once it finally got there, we had to do something with it to get it the way we wanted. This is a literal thing that is going on. So here we see Jesus scolding them. Their economic prosperity had to do with an eye salve that they had created. And it dealt with some disease that was going on. And they were selling it in that circle as well as other places. And they were making a lot of money. And it's amazing is that when somebody is financially well off, a lot of times they can be quickly become spiritually bankrupt. Because they will make the mistake, because I have received this, God must be blessing me. You've seen it and you don't even realize it. Because you've seen people who have come, shown up and, and, and maybe they went out and bought a new car. They're like, oh, man, the Lord has really blessed me today. Minus the fact that you're on a $600 a month payment plan for the next seven years, but the Lord has blessed me today. You know what people don't say? Is when tragedy strikes, they don't say, oh, the Lord is good. It's always when they get something they want. Then God is good. Then God is faithful. But when you're going through a trial, oh, we don't talk about the goodness of God. The goodness of God is irrelevant to your circumstances. It's who He is. So when somebody becomes wealthy, they quickly can become spiritually bankrupt if they don't stay on top of things. And that's exactly what was happening here. We have seen this in our own world. You'll see a church that starts very small. And they're close-knit, and they love the Lord, and that's all they want. And then they begin to explode, and money takes over. And now it's the next project, the next big building thing, or whatever's going on. And they feel like they're doing something good, but they've lost that. That's what was going on in Ephesus. They lost that first love. When we went over to the Philippines, when I say we, I went over to the Philippines, we've been supporting this church. These were great people who loved the Lord, and all they wanted to do was serve God. But financially, they were a hot mess. And it wasn't in this circumstance where, you know, they were just uh, wealthy, because they were not wealthy. But what was happening is because we were helping fund their ministry, we were covering up a bunch of issues because the accountability on what happens when, I don't know, you spend too much and have nothing left, never came home because we were there to bail them out. And so the, one of the things that I went over there to do was sit there and explain finances and how they work. Hey, when you've never had it and no one's taught you, you don't grow up through osmosis and be like, oh, I know how to work money. So we taught them and we worked with them and all of that. And it took a couple of years, but man, when they got it, they got it. And they went through the whole shutdown and everything that took place, and it didn't affect them because they were financially secure. You see, once I explained it and threatened to say, listen, if we don't begin to see some changes, we're not going to fund ineptness. We want you to be a good steward, but we'll give you time to learn it. They began to put the practices in place. They're still the same spiritual place they were. So all of these churches are unique individually. But Jesus addresses each one. And if you begin to think about this, how much of what we have read today do we see in the church in America today? You go to other parts of the world and you don't see some of this stuff. In fact, you see greater manifestations of the Holy Spirit, greater miracles going on because you know what they don't have? An option. It's believe God or die. That's your option. It's amazing, you go to other parts of the world who have nothing. Children have nothing to come home to. They live sometimes out in the open. They are hand to mouth. Sometimes they may not eat for a couple of days. But you know what they don't have? Mental health problems. Isn't that amazing? Greatest country in the world. Everything is at our fingertips. You're hungry? You can go anywhere and get the food. You have no money? Don't worry, somebody somewhere is going to bail you out. It is a lucrative career to stand on a street corner and ask for money. That's not true in a lot of parts of the world. But yet, we have all these mental health problems. We're depressed and anxiety and all of that. Greatest country in the world. You know what the problem is? We're spiritually bankrupt. We've got to get back to the first things here. Jesus is scolding all of these guys. And this is the church we see today. All of them. Different parts. The believers here. I want to read one more passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1 it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You see, that's what we're seeing today. Is that you don't agree with something biblically. You'll go find some preacher, some teacher, someone who will twist the word to make it say what you want it to say. And that's wrong. But what's more interesting about that is who wrote this. which was Paul. And who he wrote it to. Which was Timothy. His protege. His disciple. And what did he tell him? You be watchful preach the word in season, out of season. You convince, you rebuke, you exhort, but you do it with all long-suffering and teaching. And then he goes into the time will come. What's even more interesting is the church that Timothy pastored was the church of Ephesus. He was forewarning them. The time's going to come where they're going to go away. And we see him addressing it in Revelation chapter 2. You see, Jesus, and no doubt at this time, but more so today, was trying to get their attention, just like he's trying to get our attention. You and I have a responsibility to him, a devotion to him. But instead, we've done all the things that these seven churches have done, the good and the bad, and we have made it about us, and about our comfort, and about what we want. People go into hard times because God has called them to do so. People go to foreign countries and devote their lives to mission and going into a a mission field and know their life is on the line because they feel an urge by God to go and do that and what can't we do here go talk to our neighbor hear of somebody who's sick and go pray for them reach out we're too concerned about what we can go and get for ourselves heaping up these these finances for us instead of giving and being able to do what God has done Or what God has called us to do. And the amazing part is, is that, I I don't know if you know this, but God does not have a limited checkbook. We do. We have to be good stewards. But you can't outgive Him. We've got to get back to the basics and say, Okay, God, what does the church look like? The church in America is not it. We're far more like Laodicea and some of these others. When I was in the Philippines... A lot of what they were doing was mimicking what they saw on American television. And I sat down with their leader and I begged them, I said, please do not copy what you're seeing because it is spiritually bankrupt. Yours and I's goal is not to see how many people we can get to show up. Yours and I's goal is solely to preach the message, lay hands on the sick. That's our job. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin and the miracles themselves. We have a part to play. He's the head, we're the body. Jesus' hands and feet did not sit around looking for comfort. They were outdoing and outmoving. You and I are that. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us every opportunity. And Lord, we may have squandered it, and we may have wasted it, and we may have wasted the time that we have, Up to this point, but Lord, today is a new day and I thank you that you are quickening our spirits and convicting our hearts to do what you have called your body to do, to be about your work and your business, Lord, to do the things, to live a life that reflects your goodness and your mercy. That we will not take that for granted to live just like the world to look and sound just like them, but you have called us to be separated, to be distinct. That we are a nation of kings and priests, Lord, and that we will live our lives as such. And I thank you that every day is an opportunity given by you to fulfill the mission that you have called us to do, and that you are glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's eat.